1952, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. It's Kenneth Halliwell's turn to mime a scene. He stands before his improv class, a gloomy figure in his black pinstriped suit, black tie and trademark black beret. He's slightly hunched, his arms crossed tight against his chest as he readies himself for his performance. As long as he doesn't have to make eye contact, he's mastered a fierce, intimidating gaze. Look directly into it, though, and it flickers away, a mirage. Hesitantly, his arms loosen their grasp, and he reaches to pick up something invisible. He takes it in his arms, and now he's running his hand slowly over the item he's holding. Slowly, savoring each stroke, petting, that's it. He's petting an invisible cat. But even now, as he's smiling and affecting a happy moment of scratching the cat behind its ears and fluffing its fur, there's something deeply uncomfortable about watching this young man. The shame he's trying so hard to mask is writ large from head to toe. It makes his audience pity him and dislike him. He is everything an actor should not be. All effort, no grace. But now the smile disappears and is replaced by an expression that finally rings true. A curl at the lips, a faint quiver in the jaw. Here, Kenneth is anguish, he's hurt, and he's anger. Here, he's real. And it's here, and only here, that he dares make eye contact with the other students watching him. Here now, as he mimes picking the cat up by his neck with one hand, then joining the other, interlocking his fingers and squeezing. Here, there's nothing to see through. The emotion is real. And as Kenneth keeps squeezing, squeezing, squeezing some more, his face flushes as he expels all anguish and hurt, and what's left is just hatred, pure, as you can almost hear the last gasp of the cat in the silent classroom as its eyes bulge, bloodshot, and its neck falls limp, and Kenneth adds one final triumphant twist to ensure he's extinguished every drop of its imaginary life before tossing it to the ground in disgust. The class holds its breath. Kenneth's glare remains fixed on the site where he's thrown the cat's body. Finally, he takes a deep breath, raises his head and cackles. There's a moment where he pauses, as if encouraging the others to join him. But no one does. Kenneth's laughter is the only sound in the classroom, echoing off the sprung floorboards and high tin ceilings. You know, that's a common trait with psycho killers. What is? Animal abuse. Well, Halliwell didn't actually abuse any animals. It was actually... The son of Sam, Ted Bundy, the co-ed killer, Dahmer, they all tortured animals when they were young. Right, so because this poor guy, Kenneth Halliwell, tried to be provocative in his acting class by fake petting and then fake strangling a cat, he's in line with Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy? Well, I suppose it's somewhat circumstantial, but telling, no? No. Well, no, of course not. But it is part of the formula of true crime stories. You're supposed to focus on an incident early in the perpetrator's life that can be seen as a warning sign so that people who witnessed it... Or made it up for a few seconds of fame. So that those who witnessed it or made it up for a few seconds of fame can say in retrospect, ah, if only I'd reported Kenneth Halliwell to the police for strangling a fake cat in an acting class all those years ago, I could have saved lives. As if that incident were confirmation that Halliwell would someday go on to commit serious crime. Obviously, there are such things as warning signs. 
But what's remembered by whom and how it's told is all highly subjective and coloured by what happens later. Right. Confirmation bias. You have a belief about Kenneth that comes primarily from the terrible way his life ended, and then you go back 15 years, or even to his childhood, and pull out anecdotes that back up that belief. And I, for one, am sceptical whenever these warning signs tend to point to the bad seed or psychopath explanation for a crime. It's just too easy, and while, as we discussed in season one, it might make us feel better about ourselves by allowing us to say, I'm nothing like that bad, barely human monster, it's just not true. Kenneth mock strangling a cat in an acting class does not make him evil. So all right, now that we've outed ourselves for our irresponsible storytelling to start this episode, I gotta mention one more piece of foreshadowing that's just too juicy not to. Ooh, do tell. Well, during that same period at RADA, when Halliwell first mime-petted the cat with love and devotion and then strangled it, he was in the habit of stroking his boyfriend, Jordan's head, and calling him, wait for it, my pussycat. I'm Corey Eastwood, a bookseller, failing writer, and I'm creeped the fuck out by both mimes and cats. Unless the cat acts like a dog, in which case I've been known to love them very much. I'm Santiago Lemoine, a bookseller, failing writer, and I have two cats called Babushka and Kofefe. And I don't hate mimes. As a matter of fact, I have a friend who's a mime. Well, he's a clown, but the type that mimes. And I'm Ramona Stout. I don't much care for cats, but I've not yet strangled one. I went out with a clown briefly, and though it didn't end well, I didn't strangle him either. You're listening to Penknife, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it. This is episode two of season two, Crimes of Passion, the Joe Orton and Kenneth Halliwell story. Again, this season follows the series format. So if you haven't already listened to episode one, we suggest you go back and do so now. So, at the end of the last episode, Joe and Kenneth had just moved in together while they were attending RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Both were sure that they were on the path to achieving their dream of becoming famous actors. Now, if you paid even the slightest bit of attention to episode one, or even if you're like the majority of podcast listeners and not really listening but using it to drown out the noise from the demons inside your head, but you are aware that this show is about writers, not actors, then you can probably guess that both of them failed miserably at that goal. Orton was a passable actor, but not talented enough to be a lead, nor motivated or disciplined enough to grind out a career in the repertory circuit. Halliwell's failure at acting bears more mention, though, as failure is often the first word used to explain his tragic demise. At RADA, Kenneth isn't very well liked. A fellow student will say of him, he was perpetually wiping the palms of his hands with a handkerchief. He was always sweating, clammy hands. His handshake was weak, absolutely desperate. He never stood still when you spoke to him, very nervous, never looked you straight in the eye, very unrelaxed. He did everything to make himself appear bigger. Another RADA student, the actress Margaret Weising, describes his acting skills. The quality of sound was terrible, nasal strangulation, tension. He couldn't get his elbows away from his body. You see a lot of bad actors do this, they imprison themselves. He was terrified to let go. She continues, after listening to his palaver, the incessant talk of ambition, ambition, ambition. When he got up to perform, you were looking at a shy, very inhibited, self-conscious little man. 
Plus, it doesn't help that he's already bald, and according to actor Dudley Sutton, looks a bit like Himmler. <laughs> okay, we can keep pouring it on, poor Kenneth, and there are plenty more acquaintances from his rotty years who will later come out of the woodwork to say how unlikable he is. But I think the audience gets the point. Basically, Kenneth is a very nervous, insecure young man who masks his feelings of inadequacy by affecting an air of superiority. Acting better than everyone else, and to do so in a way that's thoroughly unconvincing, that's probably the most surefire way to get people to hate you. Now, to be successful at playing that role is another story entirely. I mean, human history is full of similarly sad, insecure people who manage to run governments, industries, and religions simply by putting on a good superiority act. <laughs> Indeed. In the past, I think I'd have read those quotes from the people who knew Kenneth and would have just written him off as a loser, a bad guy, a failure deserving of the scorn he received. But the truth is that, especially during my young adulthood, my character was more Halliwell than it was Orton. And by that I mean that I definitely come from the nervous, affected, trying-too-hard school of living. And I suppose it's that recognition that makes me empathize with Halliwell. Clearly he didn't want to act so contrived. He didn't want to be sweaty with a weak handshake and elbows awkwardly pressed to his sides. I'm sure he wanted to be just as free and natural as Joe was, or at least is remembered. Okay, especially as you just compared yourself to Halliwell, and he was just compared to Himmler, I feel a bit bad now comparing him to this guy. But when reading about Halliwell's young adulthood, I couldn't help but think that it wasn't so different from that of another high-ranking Nazi, Adolf Hitler. Ah, really? Come on. Now, hear me out. They were both singularly convinced of their own genius, a genius to which the world was cruelly blind. Hitler, remember, was a failing painter before he decided to change gears and move into the genocidal dictator field. They had no friends. People thought of them as uptight, self-conscious, pathetic little men. And if they hadn't gone on to do what they did, then, as you said, we could have just felt sorry for these sad young men, who probably weren't loved enough as children. Behind all their posturing and bravado, there was fear. Extreme, crippling fear. Fear of what, though? In Hitler's case, I'll posit that it was fear of being found out to be the weak little boy he probably knew himself to be. And while I reckon there was definitely a lot of that going on with Halliwell as well, there's also something else which we already mentioned in the last episode. Yeah, something that we'll keep returning to throughout this series because it bears repeating. And that's that Halliwell was gay, and being gay was illegal in the UK until 1967. From an early age, he learned that he had to hide his true self and that he should fear exposure. Hitler somehow convinced an entire nation to buy his act. Halliwell only seems to have convinced one person, Joe Orton. In his diary at the time of their meeting, Joe Orton notes that he can't figure out Kenneth Halliwell. The lack of understanding probably most stems from the fact that Joe is 18 while Halliwell is 25. 25-year-old who can not only quote Shakespeare, but Euripides, Ronald Furbank, and countless others as well. Who knows about opera and French wines, and has already acted in a dozen of reputable productions. Joe's peers are easy to read, essentially posh versions of himself with the same mix of pretension and desire to please that he has. But Kenneth, with his dark dress and brooding demeanor, and his extraordinary determination to be the very best, is a tantalizing enigma. For Joe, Kenneth becomes a friend, a mentor, and a lover all in one. In the beginning, in Joe's eyes, Kenneth really is smarter, wiser, and more talented than all the rest. And as for Kenneth, in Joe he finds someone who looks up to him and confirms the elevated view he has of himself. 
Plus Joe's boyish beauty and flirtatious charm make him just Kenneth's type. Kenneth is the pursuer, Joe the pursued. As we'll see later in this podcast, Jordan has a very robust sex drive. But with Kenneth, that's never the main appeal. From the very start of their relationship, their weak sexual connection is a point of conflict between them. Namely that Kenneth wants it and Joe's reluctant to give it to him. In other matters though, Joe pretty much does whatever Kenneth tells him to. I'm going to quote a roommate of theirs at the time. In the quote he refers to Joe as John, as during that time Joe still went by his given name, John. He says, quote, Halliwell was like a Svengali to John. He took John over. It was as if he were playing God. When they went shopping, he'd suggest that John buy certain colorful clothes. He'd show John what to wear, what to read, where to go. So from the very beginning, Kenneth exhibits all the traits of an emotionally violent, controlling boyfriend. From moody outbursts to keeping him away from other men who show interest, Kenneth is bad for Joe from the start. Yes, but he's also good for him, and that's why Joe stays. Writing is Kenneth's pursuit, not Joe's. In Joe's words, I never wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be an actor. And in the early days of their relationship, Joe's just a struggling actor who serves as Kenneth's typist as he works on novels and plays that they're both sure are going to be enormously successful. But as Joe types Kenneth's manuscripts, he begins to make comments and small edits here and there. In time, the edits get bigger, turn into structural suggestions and plot points, and Joe begins to recognise that he not only has a bit of enthusiasm for writing, but talent as well. So if failure is the first word attributed to Kenneth Halliwell and used as a motive for his final crime, envy is a close second. Jordan will go on to become one of the most important British dramatists of the 1960s. While Kenneth's novels and plays will receive nothing but rejection, Kenneth will grow obsessed with wanting Joe's attention and his love, but he will also covet Joe's talent. However, in these early years of their collaboration in the mid to late 1950s, Kenneth, with all his books, his big words, and bigger ideas, is still the real writer of the pair. And knowing this, he doesn't feel at all threatened by Joe's increasing interest in writing. In fact, he encourages it and pushes Joe to take himself more seriously, to read more thoroughly, and to dedicate more hours at the writing desk. There's a good chance that had Orton not met Halliwell, he never would have become a writer. And even if he did write without Halliwell, his natural wit and ability to craft dialogue might have been missing the other major ingredient, which is just as important to any successful writer, discipline. Right. It makes me think of that book, Outliers, by Malcolm Gladwell. Have either of you ever read it? Ah, the greatest pseudo-social scientist of our time. No, I haven't. Nor will I. Nor I. Well, I did when it came out. One of those books that I was selling so much that I just had to open it up to see what all the fuss was about. In it, Gladwell makes an argument that to really be good at something, be it sports, business, the arts, whatever, you need to first put in 10,000 hours of practice. He uses the Beatles as an example because early in their career they did residencies in Hamburg where they were performing nearly every night. And in just a few years played more live music than many bands do in their entire careers. Gladwell claims that it was that daily grind in Hamburg that allowed them to perfect and innovate their craft. Now... Like a lot of Gladwell, this 10,000 hours theory is flawed and pretty easily debunked as there are countless examples of artists who make it without putting in anything close to 10,000 hours, and sadly, many more examples of those who put in 20,000 and are still failures. So, I think I see where you're going with this. You're saying that it was because of Halliwell that Orton put in his 10,000 hours, that the late 50s were basically their Hamburg period. 
Well, yeah. I mean, I think the 10,000 hours idea is nonsense and just an arbitrary number Gladwell came up with to sell books. But there's definitely something to be said for the old adage that practice makes perfect. And that's what Halliwell and Orton do tirelessly for nearly a decade. In his journals, Orton constantly references unpublished novels and plays that he and Halliwell wrote during this period. Just when you think you've read mention of all of them, some other unpublished work emerges. They just keep writing book after book, play after play, and sticking them in the desk drawer. So as their writing becomes more and more collaborative, their relationship becomes more and more hermetic. Halliwell's inheritance, which had been there in the beginning to lavish Orton with constant gifts of books and clothes and records, is rapidly dwindling. Going out into the world to, say, the theater, to dinner, or traveling on the tube means spending money. So these luxuries are all gradually eliminated. Avoiding the world proves good for three things. One, it saves money. Two, it allows Halliwell to have Orton all to himself. And three, the more they check out of society, the easier it is for them to reinforce their belief that they're better than it. To save on electricity, they get up at dawn and go to bed at dusk. Mornings are reserved for writing. The rest of the day is just spent reading and, when possible, sunbathing. All right. That fruit is just a bit too low hanging to pick. So I'll just let it sit there for the audience. Sunbathing in London. Yeah, writing, reading, sunbathing, and living on £5 a week. Inflation adjusted, that's about £135 a week between the two of them, i.e. not much at all. In 55, they sent Faber and Faber one of their earliest co-written novels, The Last Days of Sodom. One of the editors, Richard Brain, says it has literary quality, but is weighed down with too much purple writing. Good, but not good enough to publish. Purple writing, that's fitting. You know that bit in the beginning of Lolita? Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul? No, I didn't want to foreshadow that part yet. I mean, the part about writing where he says, you can always count on a murderer for a fancy prose style. Ah, of course. Anyhow, the same editor, Richard Brain, or Dick Brain, if you will. Oh, very cute and Orton-esque of you. Orton could never resist a good cock pun. He used to refer to the star of To Kill a Mockingbird as Gregory Prick. So Dick Brain says of meeting them, they seemed as strange as their writing. I quite soon got the impression that this was the oddest pair of people I'd ever met. He also sensed that Kenneth was the one who did all the writing, as he was the talker and the one who came off as the literary type. Joe, on the other hand, seemed to be just his young and pretty and rather vivacious boyfriend. In 56, after another unpublishable submission from Halliwell and Orton, Dick Brain and his fellow Faber and Faber editor Charles Monteith decide to invite them out for a meal. When the two young men show up looking well out of their element, they confess that it's been years since they've been to a restaurant. Monteith and Dick Brain get a glimpse of the way they've been feeding themselves when Halliwell and Orton try to return the favor by inviting the editors over for dinner one night. Here they describe the evening. The first voice you'll hear is Charles Monteith. The second is our guy, Dick Brain. They entertained us, um, and it was a, one of the most bizarre and terrible meals I've ever eaten, because to save their money, to make their lump of savings last as long as possible, uh, they used to live mostly on rice and fish, and uh, some golden syrup, which they thought was very nourishing. Uh, the whole thing cost very little, so we had a meal consisting mainly of rice, fish, and golden syrup. Well, the first course was rice and sardines, and the, <laughs> the second course was... Right. Differently cooked rice with golden syrup. Golden syrup, that's right. Uh, Ramona, can we bother you again for a second? 
What, pray tell, is golden syrup? Sounds a bit golden showery to me. It's like a type of treacle. Wait, what's a treacle? Treacle is very special. It's mind, actually. Wait, treacle has a mind? Like, special in the sense that it's smart or like special ed? Treacle is brilliant, actually. And mined all over England. In fact, it's the only country in the world with natural treacle wells. What? My mum makes an amazing treacle tart. But what the fuck is it? And anyway, I was asking... Well, as these two knuckleheads fail to successfully communicate with each other, they provide a good segue into an important lesson that Halliwell and Orton learn in the years of their writing together. And that's that collaboration ain't easy. As we can all well attest. You can say that again. Again and again. Anyhow, by 57, our guys have pretty much thrown in the towel on trying to write together. All the rejection has gotten to them, and they decide to take a new tack and go it alone. In his earliest work, a play written before he joined forces with Orton called The Protagonist, Kenneth Halliwell wrote, Our art has no existence until it is recognized. What was the use of my power when I could only display it before yokels? This is the end to which my being has been directed, the acclamation of the world, and nothing less. By the late 50s, Halliwell must be asking himself this question. What's it all worth if he's receiving no acclamation from the world? Okay, so I'm 41 years old, the age Halliwell was when he died. In 1959, he was 34, which was exactly my age when I hit what was definitely a low point in my life. When after multiple abandoned novels and poor progress on the memoir I'd begun writing, I was beginning to lose hope. And because my writing was so wrapped up with my identity, Losing hope in it meant losing hope in everything. I'd done my 10,000 hours alone at the writing desk when, goddammit, I mean, think of all the things I could have done. Instead of sitting there day after day fighting with words, I could have been learning a foreign language, or the piano, or how to properly dress myself. I could have been relaxing and watching TV, or, I don't know, playing the stock market, tindering, doing push-ups, all those Gladwellian hours spent typing away into the void. And if, as Halliwell wrote, that art has no existence until it's recognized, then I'd made nothing. I'd done nothing. And worse, if recognition and acclaim are, in Halliwell's words, the end to which your being is directed, then what are you left with if you fail? When you've made your art the measure of your worth and your art amounts to nothing, then it makes you nothing, no? What do you do then? All right, it's choose your own adventure time. You ready? Yeah, I guess. A. You divorce yourself from the silly idea that your worth is your art. B. You lose your mind and commit a horrible act of violence. Or C. You start a podcast. Ugh, I mean, this is depressing. I mean, three, I guess. But I don't even want a podcast anymore. How about a word from our sponsors? Mm, sorry, we're actually not successful enough to have any. Ugh. Well, then fuck it. I guess we should just end the episode on this very depressing note. Wait! Perhaps there's a fourth option we haven't thought of yet. Yeah, what's that? Well, instead of the podcast or horrible act of violence, you could, to protest your failure as a writer, artfully deface library books in a futile attempt to strike a blow at the writers who succeeded and been published and at the literary world who rejected you. Hmm. So crazy it just might work. Yep. Well, it's what Kenneth and Joe choose. After a decade of rejection slips, they orchestrate what is probably the biggest attack on the Islington Public Library branch in its history. Take that, libraries. We'll hear all about it on episode three of season two of Penknife. Penknife. 
Penknife is created, written, and produced by Corey Eastwood, Ramona Stout, and me, Santiago Lamon. Joe Orton is voiced by Lou Ellis. The clip of Dick Brain and Charles Monteith were taken from the 1982 Arena documentary, A Genius Like Us, a portrait of Joe Orton. Penknife sound design, music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. Flor Lopez designed our website, penknifepodcast.com, where you can find a full bibliography of the works we used in researching this season. And a very special thanks to Mr. Rick Urbanelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. If you're liking what you're hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do right now is to rate and review Penknife on Apple Podcasts and to subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen to us right now. And if you really like Penknife and want to hear more of it, please consider heading over to patreon.com penknife to support us. We'd hoped season two would be easier and cheaper to make than season one, but telling this story the way we thought it deserved to be told ended up being nearly as time-consuming and even more costly. We'd love to keep making Penknife, but to do so, we really need your help. Even a tin of treacle or two a month would go a long way. And regardless of whether or not you leave us a review or a few bucks, we thank you for listening.